Hello, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, warm welcome to this webinar on Indonesian families. Um, we're going to just run through very quickly uh, some of the upcoming uh, webinars or virtual roundtables that will be held during the course of June, and uh, after which I'm going to hand over to Joe Tang, who will then kick things off and take us through the, uh, the virtual roundtable for today. Um, so if I just uh, share my screen and take you through what's planned for the upcoming uh, uh, days ahead. The first one will be uh, tomorrow, which is the China Private Client Virtual Roundtable. If you've not registered for this, then please um, spend some time. It's on LinkedIn, or alternatively, you can email me and uh, I'll be able to direct you to the relevant registration page. Now, later in June, we're going to have the, uh, the first Thailand Virtual Roundtable. Uh, dates are not confirmed yet. And we're, we're probably going to be joined by a Japanese legal counsel for this one. Uh, but this is in the current, uh, it's sort of uh, in, in the details being worked out in the background. And then later on still, uh, we will have finally the Malaysia private client uh, virtual round table. And Live on IVFC have been invited to contribute to this along with us. And of course, Henley and Partners will join as well. So these are the upcoming virtual roundtables. Um, I think that the key one is tomorrow for the China private client because that's confirmed and that'll be at 4 p.m. tomorrow, Singapore time. Basis of these virtual roundtables is pretty consistent. What they're looking at is the interaction of the different legal systems. So we have clients from around the region and we're looking at how their legal systems interact in a, in a number of different ways. So we're looking at it from a perspective of community property um, where, there, where there's relevant laws, and we're looking at it from a perspective of a client's divorcing, as well as looking at it from a succession standpoint. And really the important aspect from, let's say, Singapore or Hong Kong um, sort of financial services sector perspective is that we're understanding really the, the limits of the private wealth structures that we promote to our clients, and also understanding what can happen with their private wealth if these uh, circumstances were to arise on a divorce, and particularly because of the COVID-19 uh, problems uh, looking at succession in particular. So, as I say, China's coming up. The dates for the, uh, the programs in Thailand and the programs for Malaysia will be announced in due course. The same thing, we're looking at an interplay of the relevant jurisdictional laws and, and seeing how those interact on a cross-border basis. Okay, I'll stop sharing now and I'll invite Joe to, um, to, uh, to take over from here. Um, thanks, Zach. Um, okay. Zach, in the meantime, can you try to get uh, there? We are ready. Yes, there he is. Excellent. So let me share my screen. Okay. All right. Can you guys? Zach, can you see my screen? Yeah, so it's in presenter mode. You just need to switch to that other mode that we, we were doing earlier on. Yep. Is this one correct now? Nope, not yet. Just keep going. Not yet. Keep, keep going. If you want, I can just do it, uh, Joe. Yep, it still doesn't work, right? 
No, so I'll, I'll do it if you wish. Okay. Um, let me just stop sharing. Um, okay, here you go. Okay, so we're all in. We can, we're good to go, I guess. Yeah. Right. Thanks, Zach. So, let me first start by introducing the uh, the speakers today. Um, Freddie, I'm glad you're in. Uh, Freddie Freddie Cariadi is a partner at um, ABNR, a very prominent Indonesian law firm. Freddie has over 20 years of experience uh, practicing law in Indonesia. And he has been assisting and advising Indonesian business families and high net worth individuals with structuring transactions and assets, mergers and acquisitions, uh, divestments, and of course with the, um, the tax amnesty. Freddie has been consistently rated as one of the uh, leading lawyers by several international publications, including Asia Law, Legal 500, Asia Business Journal, and the IFLR 1000. This is over the past decade. <coughs> Next, I would like to introduce Zach. Zach Lucas is uh, a partner at McCarthy Denning. Zach is a qualified, um, a UK qualified lawyer with over 20 years experience in private um, client um, practice. He's been advising high net worth individuals and families in relation to international wills, trusts and estates with um, a particular expertise advising on cross-border succession and international matrimonial rights and remedies. <clears throat> Zach currently splits his time between London and Singapore, and uh, he's leading um, McCarthy Denning's partnership with uh, the local Singapore law firm, Arrogates LLC. Zach is a former partner of various international law firms, and he was previously admitted to practice law in the BVI and Anguilla. <coughs> Next, um, I'd like to introduce you to John Schumacher. John is a registered foreign lawyer at Butler and Snow in Singapore. John has over 25 years experience, which includes US tax and regulatory law, multi-jurisdictional compliance issues globally. John is a seasoned professional in international wealth transfer planning. He represents ultra-high net worth families and family-controlled businesses throughout the world with respect to U.S. federal income, gift and estate taxes, especially as they apply to trusts, foundations, and other uh, fiduciary structures. He is a frequent presenter on cross-border U.S. tax issues. His extensive understanding of U.S. estate succession and related community property laws combined with the background in regulatory issues of compliance management gives him a unique insight into managing and controlling risk and structuring fiduciary products in a highly efficient and compliant manner. <coughs> Finally, I um, would like to introduce you to Dominic Follack. Dominic is the um, head of Southeast Asia at Henley and Partners in Singapore. Henley is one of the leading um, migration firms in the world. Dominic is responsible for Henley and Partners operations across South and Southeast Asia. Dominic is a private client specialist in residence and citizenship by investment planning and regularly advises high net worth individuals, their families and advisors across Asia, targeting countries that are deemed most attractive 
to wealthy clients in terms of mobility, security, privacy, personal tax, estate planning, as well as lifestyle. Dominic is a member of the firm's government uh, advisory practice, providing strategic advice to governments on the design, implementation, and promotion of investment migration programs. Um, next slide, please, Zach. So the agenda of today, we prepared uh, three case studies for you. We'll be, we'll be looking at um, domestic matrimonial property for Indonesians, um, issues surrounding divorce and succession. We'll be looking at um, foreign matrimonial property for an Indonesian, and we'll go over the same issues with respect to divorce and succession. Finally, we'll um, have a few on the Indonesians migrating to the EU and some of the considerations there. So the first case study, we have an Indonesian couple. You can see um, in the middle, Rudy, who's married to uh, Katrina. They're Indonesian citizens. The domicile is Indonesia and they're living in Indonesia. So before we move on, um, Zach, since we, we got a very diverse audience today with many guests from the uh, common law background and many guests with um, legal background. Uh, can you briefly explain this out? I think, Joe, sorry, you broke up, but I think what you're asking is in terms of domicile and how, how that works. So from, from a domicile perspective, um, it, it's really a common law uh, approach to classifying the status of individuals. So domicile is a, a rather nebulous little project or, or topic because it actually comprises uh, many different aspects. Uh, one of which is you, you will get a domicile of, if you're from a common law jurisdiction, you'll generally have a, a domicile of origin, which is usually your parent. So your, your father, if your parents were married, your mother, if they were unmarried. And then later on, you'll have a domicile effectively of dependency as you grow up. And once you reach majority, you're then able to have choices as to uh, different jurisdictions in which you can then take on a domicile of choice. The key thing is you always have a domicile, one single domicile throughout your life. And the challenge with domicile of choice, which is generally the most difficult, is uh, showing enough connecting factors to a jurisdiction to justify having a domicile there for common law systems. Many of the legal uh, sort of constructs around succession, around matrimonial regimes, etc., deal with domicile. And so domicile as a concept tends to be quite a, um, an important topic to understand when you're looking at succession law particularly. And it really is down to the connecting factors, your subjective intention, and the surrounding circumstances showing a firm intention to remain in a jurisdiction permanently. And that's generally what domicile tends to mean. Okay. Thanks, Zach. Um, <clears throat> let's continue with the, uh, the first case. Um, this one final comment. Uh, Rudy and Katrina have one son, Kevin, who is uh, an Indonesian citizen. If you show the next slide, uh, Zach. <coughs> Kevin is an Indonesian citizen, Singapore PR, and his domicile is in Singapore. Um, there's one daughter, Katrina, who is in the US. You see all the um, assets of the couple. 
in Hong Kong, in the US, and the, and the BVI. Can we go on to the next one? Next slide, please, Zach. Yep. Okay. Um, let me first focus on the uh, community um, property, community issue. Um, uh, Freddie, before we zoom into um, some of the features of um, community issues affecting an Indonesian marriage, could you briefly explain the, um, what, what the term community actually means and then elaborate on the basics of um, Indonesian community property rules? Okay, thank you, Joe. So I think uh, before we start with the what is a community, better we start with what uh, kind of law applicable to the Indonesian individuals. In Indonesia, that uh, when we talk about the, the regulation on the individual relating to the marriage and inheritance, that's uh, affected by his or her uh, religion or, or uh, his or her uh, ethnic. So, because in Indonesia we have uh, several regulation on on different uh, type of uh, uh, religion for for the personal matters like marriage and inheritance. So, in this case, uh, we would like to only focus on the regulation based on the civil code that uh, we and uh, uh, Married law on 1974. So this is uh, to to make it uh, uh, more focus on, on on this particular law. So now we start in the in the community. So basically, any single spouse that uh, married and they they uh, do not sign any prenup or postnup agreement. So the the assets post. Uh, Merit would be uh, constituting as a, a joint property or a community uh, assets or community property here. So that's uh, the basic uh, or the fundamentals idea. So unless they 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 sign the prenuptial that the government otherwise, all assets after the marriage become uh, uh, jointly owned. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> So do the um, Indonesian community property rules apply to um, inherited property of one of the um, of the husband or the wife, or do they, do they apply to the property that was uh, already acquired before the marriage? Okay. Basically, the community property apply, uh, of course, uh, after the, uh, for the inheritance as well. So let's say, the husband passed away and the husband has on a set, let's say, 100. So we need to take out first the portion of the community property. Let's say the community property, let's say, uh, 50. So the, the inheritance uh, only on the, on the remaining 50. Okay. Um you you mentioned um, a prenuptial agreement could you yes. um, just for those um, non-lawyers among us could you briefly explain what a what a prenuptial agreement is okay whether it's legally uh, effective of course uh, thank you 
Uh, the prenuptial agreement, yes, that's uh, fully recognized in Indonesia uh, and uh, start the governance since uh, 1974. So basically, this is the, the agreement between the, the spouse. Uh, they they sign and start uh, applicable as of the, the marriage uh, valid by the law. Uh, this is uh, something that the agreement that uh, will govern how the ownership of the assets after their marriage. So anything they already have before their marriage, uh, not subject to this, uh, basically not subject to this uh, prenuptial agreement. Uh, in 2015, the Indonesian Constitutional Court uh, issued a decision, uh, issued a decision to give an opportunity for the post uh, agreement. And that's basically the same as the prenuptial, but for um, assets, for those uh, couples who never um, signed the prenuptial agreement. Okay, let's go on to the um, next um, questions. Pafredi, uh, can Karina claim um, community rights over property that has been transferred to a foreign trust, like in this case, the uh, the Hong Kong trust that you can see on the, uh, the top right. Okay, so basically the, the spouse that uh, not, not excluded based on the prenuptial agreement, they, they have the 50% of the, the other spouse assets. That's the basic principle. So the, the asset that transfer to the trust, for instance, the asset is cash in bank in let's say in Singapore and transfer to the trust, and this and then they they uh, got divorced, for instance, and uh, what happened with the, the assets that's in uh, under the control or possession of the of the, of the trust? Yes, uh, this one uh, will be can be. Uh, Disputed or can be uh, would be subject to the uh, community property. Okay, clear. And Zach, question for you: Does the um, the Hong Kong trust law give any protection against uh, a community property claim? Uh, generally, Hong Kong would follow the uh, sort of common law system, and within common law systems, although um, we generally don't have community property. So it's the same in Singapore, UK, Australia, etc. Uh, we do respect community property from a foreign jurisdiction. So from the Hong Kong trust perspective, you would look at whether or not Hong Kong had any uh, applicable firewall legislation to defeat a, uh, a, a sort of spouse's claim to half the assets transferred into the trust. Um, generally, well, in Hong Kong, there is no firewall protection against community. And it's probably worth mentioning that um, generally, the international financial centers that do have advanced trust laws, uh, they generally do not seek to defeat community property claims. And the basis of that is because community property really is a proprietary right by virtue of the effective marriage domicile. So it's not a, uh, a sort of right that's been given by a discretionary court order. These are proprietary rights by virtue of the marriage domicile. And in this case, the marriage domicile would be Indonesia, it has community property, assets transferred into trust, um, effectively close to marriage or celebration of the marriage 
would be uh, within the community and therefore um, uh, it would be a right that would be subsumed within the trust. So uh, Hong Kong trust law doesn't provide uh, protections against community property claims and indeed uh, many of the other jurisdictions, Cayman, etc., also do likewise. They don't seek to defeat proprietary claims against uh, assets transferred into trust. Mm, thanks. And if you look at this particular case, the 75% um, um, indirect holdings of the trust in the Indonesian trading company, how, how would that be um, protected or respected? I think this is, um, it's really down to, if you can trace through the trust, which is what effectively I think Hong Kong will do, the question here is whether or not uh, the sort of Indonesian court would short circuit all of that and seek to apply community directly against the, um, the proportionate share of the Indonesian trading company. I think for Freddie, this might be one um, for you, Freddie, is whether or not an Indonesian court would seek to disturb corporate structures in this way to recognize a personal right in Karina, let's assume, for her community property claim in assets that have been transferred into trust originally. Yeah, I think the, the, the asset that transferred to the trust, including this, this example, let's say uh, the trust indirect shares 75% in Indonesian trading company. Uh, when the transfer happened, the transfer should uh, follow the community property uh, relevant regulation that uh, the wife should give the spouse consent in short. So the, the transfer uh, not in compliance or in absence of the spouse consent uh, may be subject to the uh, dispute uh, or claim by, by the the wife that 50% uh, of that uh, belong to the wife. Right. Thanks. We go to the next, please. <clears throat> John, sorry, John, a question for you. Um, would the US recognize um, a foreign community property claim? Yeah, thanks, Joe. I think the, the important thing to understand here is that the US treats these um, community property issues on a state by state basis, not federal the way that the, the federal tax system works. Now there is a separate state tax system, but there is an overarching federal tax system. There is not from a community property perspective. So absent a contention, you know, absent someone challenging it, the answer to the question would be yes. The, the U.S. would tend to respect the community property decision that has been reached by another jurisdiction, regardless of the state, tend to. If there's a contention, though, the states vary widely in their definitions of marital property, and they may not align with the Indonesian um, definition that's been achieved. So you might have a contentious issue. It's best to go ahead ahead of time and identify the relevant jurisdictions where either property is located, like the land, uh, immovable property, or um, property where it's temporarily immovable, where you've got that bank account, maybe you shift it to a different state or outside of the U.S. to avoid that conflict issue. Okay, thanks. <clears throat> and Zach, what about the um the BFI, do they um, recognize foreign community property ownership? 
Yeah, so the BVI would apply um, UK common law principles. Um, they would recognize the um, matrimonial domicile. And if the matrimonial domicile held uh, community in property ownership, then the BVI law would respect that. So that they would look at the ownership of the BVI shares as being subject to whatever the community was in the, uh, in the source jurisdiction. So yes, I think for Karina in this case, um, were she to take an action in the BVI to recognize her community rights, uh, then the BVI would apply um, UK uh, normal common law principles. And a lot of these principles are quite old cases, old and dated cases. Um, so they, they, they hark back to different eras, but um, generally they're consistent. And even though some of these cases look at the community property rights also extending not only to movables like a share, but also to immovables like land. And so there's a, a famous UK case with a South African couple where uh, it also was found that the community property extended to UK land and not just to, um, to movable assets. So yes, the, the BVI would apply UK principles in the ordinary way, looking at the matrimonial domicile to recognize. Let's move on to the, um, the next case, um, a divorce between Rudy and uh, Katrina. Um, next slide, please, Zach. Um, let's start with um, Freddie. Freddie, on what basis will the Indonesian court determine whether they have jurisdiction to, to grant a divorce? Okay, so basically because the, the marriage uh, was uh, done under the Indonesian law, so I already started here at least they they did the marriage under foreign law so the indonesian court uh, would recognize uh, the indonesian married law so they they will accept the the claim for the divorce and they uh, start process and give the decision okay thank you would the um, Indonesian court try to uh, redistribute or change the Indonesian community property rights? Yes. Uh, normally, in the in the in the divorce claim, at least three three main uh, three main points to be to be there in the claim. Of course, number one is the divorce itself uh, by mentioning the reason. Number two, yes, uh, about this uh, community property. Number three, if they have uh, children, the rights to uh, take care of the children moving forward. Okay. Um, <clears throat> would the Indonesian court follow and enforce the, um, the contents of a prenuptial agreement or postnuptial agreement? Uh, in general, yes, they will check first uh, whether the formality of the prenuptial or postnuptial already already fully complied or perfected, because uh, it is quite common in Indonesia the prenuptial, although the substance uh, okay, but the formality somehow not really uh, complied with. Same with the postnup. But the general answer, yes, they they, they follow and enforce. Okay, thank you. Um, next slide, please. Yep, thanks. Uh, 
stuff ready, would the Indonesian court try to issue any um, order to change the ownership rights of the, of the Hong Kong Trust or would they try to terminate the Hong Kong Trust? Uh, I think this depends on the situation, on what, what is the, 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 the case by case, yeah. But uh, in case the, the, the Hong Kong Trust uh, involved in the, tra the transfer that uh, not comply with the community property rules, the, the court may give the order that the transfer uh, not correct. So the 50% of the transferred assets to the Hong Kong Trust uh, would be still owned by the the spouse that do not do not involve in the in that transfer because the absence of the spouse consent. But Freddie, just on that, um, insofar as the the Indonesian court is concerned, if we've got community property 50-50 to the spouses, and we've got a prenuptial or a nuptial agreement that basically respects that. It does other things, but it respects that their their rights are 50-50. There's no chance of an Indonesian court making a discretionary order to disturb that 50-50 rule, is there? So they wouldn't just arbitrarily say that actually one spouse is entitled to 60% and the other is 40, and then seek to dismantle uh, foreign structures in order to achieve that division of property. Is that right? So they would, they would generally respect the community and respect the, the prenuptial terms and wouldn't go beyond and try and make a discretionary order uh, disturbing those arrangements. Is, is that correct? Yeah, okay. Generally they follow, generally they follow. The, the, the law gives the opportunity for the third party actually who, who want to this prenuptial but they can prove the prenuptial or the postnup were made to cause damages to the third party. So the, the third party who, who suffer damages uh, have an opportunity to, to, to submit the claim or, or, or debate or argue about the, the, the substance in the, in the prenuptial. Who would this third party be in practice? Sorry? Who would the third party be in practice that would challenge this? In practice, uh, to be honest, not not really aware. Or normally, the the court simply follow what what stated in the in the prenuptial. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Okay. Right. So, <clears throat> the question um, probably for you, uh, Zach and John, would the um, Indonesian divorce court seek to make a discretionary order? Ferrying the rights to uh, foreign property, like in this case the US and BVI. Now you want to go first, John? Sure. Um, yeah, I think from a US perspective, um, absent a contention, um, the, the, the 
movable property is more likely to really not face any challenge or any grabbing of jurisdiction. The, the, the immovable property, the land, um, it's a little tougher. Uh, you really would have to look, look at the state jurisdiction. And if you've got um, um, a conveyance of that that runs contrary to the treatment in that state and there is some contention in play, then yeah, you've got a, you've got a problem that you probably hopefully took advice on ahead of time and try to resolve that before you get into a contentious situation. Uh, I'd like to mention just real briefly on the, the prenuptial agreement, if that involves this um, uh, outcome here, if there's a prenup involved and the Indonesia Divorce Court is trying to rely on it to enforce, there's a, a few elevated standards we'd wanna see from a US perspective. So independent counsel for each party, um, full forthrightness, all assets and accounts were declared. If, if one spouse wasn't aware of some of the assets at the time of the prenup, that's a strong indication that that prenup could be invalidated and might not be enforceable. Um, and then it shouldn't address things like child custody or duties within or after the marriage because those won't be enforceable under a prenup. And then for the prenup, not for postnup, obviously, but for the prenup, really want to see that about five to six weeks before the wedding, not, you know, the day of or, or a few days out from it. From BVI perspective, I think, uh, of course, BVI would probably be a matter of comedy if BVI were to enforce a, a sort of foreign discretionary order uh, dividing the BVI company. But I would have thought if, let's say in this case, Rudy is remains in the, the jurisdiction of Indonesia, then the Indonesian court, if it were to make an order in this way, would have um, sanctions against Rudy in any event. And I think, Freddie, you could probably um, sort of confirm this, that if the Indonesian court were to make an order to Rudy to, let's say, transfer the shares or half of the shares in the BVI company, then if Rudy were to comply with that, then he'd effectively be in contempt of court and would probably be committed to prison if he if he didn't they don't go on to do that. So it may not get to a point of enforcement in the BVI. Is that is that correct, Freddie? Okay, for the, the if, if Rudy did the transfer without the without the spouse consent and the spouse somehow claimed, uh, two issue here. First, uh, if the spouse think that this is a illegal transfer, so he uh, she she thinks that the fifty percent belong to her, so yes. she she can claim uh, first. Uh, on the civil uh, civil law, so the, uh, meaning that the damages for the for the for the value of the assets. Uh, the second, if if uh, the, if she thinks uh, okay, maybe uh, go to the criminal aspect. So the uh, embezzlement may 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 be considered. Right, but but if the if for whatever reason they wanted to transfer the BVI shares out of Rudy's sole ownership and also half of it, let's say, to Karina as, as part of the divorce settlement. If Rudy didn't comply with that order from the court, then he'd be in contempt, wouldn't he? Yeah, I think the, if, if, if uh, there is an Indonesian court order on the, uh, that instructs Rudy to return, uh, that's uh, depend on how the the the, the decision uh, speaks because the instruction itself also need to be supported or back up with the with the confiscation. Mm. 
confiscation order should be also there. So the how how the claim drafted uh, very important here to make sure that the, the decision is not only the declaration but also declaration plus the further action. Right, right, right. The further action meaning that's including the confiscation and then uh, order the public auction and the, the proceeds uh, given or transferred to the to the spouse. Right. Okay. Okay. Thanks for that. Let's go move uh, move to the next um, case, the um, domestic succession. So, Rudy passes away. Um, next one, please, sir. Yeah. Um, Freddie, I have a question for you here. On what basis um, do the Indonesian succession laws apply to? Pak Rudi's um, inheritance. Okay, thank you. So if Pak Rudi uh, still keeps the Indonesian citizen, so uh, meaning that the Indonesian succession law will use, uh, will be applicable. Uh, but this one again, like we discussed earlier, we need to honor as well the community property because the community property should not be part of the inheritance assets. Okay. Let's, in terms of just the succession laws, we'll assume that, that Rudy is not within the Muslim faith. So how, how no. will the succession laws apply in, in that case if he's a non-Muslim? Yeah, this is on the non-Muslim that uh, basically the, the citizenship of, of Parudi uh, would play very significant role here. Okay. Mm. So, yeah, the next question is um, on forced, forced hardship. Um, but let me split this in two. Can you first, Freddy, um, just briefly explain what, what forced hardship uh, rights are? And then um, do the Indonesian succession laws include forced hardship? Okay, thank you. Basically, in Indonesia, we, we know that the, this type of concept, maybe the, the similar one is a legitimum policy. So that the, the human rights, uh, let's say the, the kids, uh, is protected uh, up uh, no less than 50% of their uh, original rights. Let's say the kids supposed to be have uh, thirty percent or forty percent. Uh, the rights can be reduced, but cannot be lower than fifty percent times the, the thirty or forty percent. Okay. So, okay. Let's move on to one. If it's is it possible for forced hairs to um basically you agree that um, their forced hardship rights can be changed or can they waive them all together? Okay. So of course, uh, if they agree together and they, 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 they agree to make, uh, their own calculation, that's possible. Let's say the kid's supposed to be have 30%, but agree to just have 10%. Uh, 
that's uh, possible or sometimes they they uh, the kids simply reject reject the entire the entire inheritance but uh, the other kids agree to give him or her a certain uh, compensation that's also possible okay that's respectful all right <clears throat> um, the next question does uh, does the Indonesian law succession law permit any testamentary freedom Testamentary freedom, yeah. Uh, this one is uh, recognized, but still, the testamentary freedom must honor uh, or cannot breach the uh, force rights or legitimum policy, and also uh, cannot uh, touch the matrimony, uh, the the joint assets that are not subject to the inheritance. What's the percentage of the the non-community property, so the, the free estate, what percentage can actually be disposed of by a will without any forced airship right? Uh, this one is uh, not uh, clearly regulated, but in short, uh, everyone can do the, the testamentary, free, uh, testamentary uh, but the final calculation must be made and must honor the force hair rights. Okay. Great. Um, let's move on. Uh, Freddie, under the um, Indonesian succession law, is there a possibility for Rudy's hairs to? claim back the um, asset um, that has been transferred to the Hong Kong Trust? In general, yes. If the peers do not or will not receive any benefit from their trust. In case the, the transfer breaches the Legitimum Borsi. Freddie, does it make a difference when the transfers were made into trust? I mean, this could have been many, many years before um, Rudy's death. Does it make a difference to the clawback um, when it occurred in terms of the gift into the trust? Uh, in general, no, no such limit. Uh, but the 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 basic uh, statutory limitation for the civil code, basic statutory, not only about the clawback of this uh, 30 years, the basic one. And then the clawback uh, must be done no later than three years after the distribution. Okay. So, what about the um, the indirect holding of the trust in the Indonesian trading company? Is there uh, any chance for them to claw back the holding? Okay, this one is depend on the on the on the structure of the transaction. 
but in case the asset that transferred by Pak Rudy here is the shares in Indonesian trading company. So the the shares in that Indonesian trading company may be subject to the clawback. So in, in that way, the heirs can short um, short circuit the Hong Kong trust and just go directly against the domestic Indonesian company. Is that right, Freddie? Sorry, can you repeat? Is it possible that the heirs that want to do a clawback claim against the foreign trust, if they want, they can effectively go against the domestic Indonesian property and not bother to take a claim out in the Hong Kong courts. Is that right? If the asset that Rudy transferred that to the to the trust is the Indonesian asset, yes. Let's say Pak Rudy owned the shares in the Indonesian trading company and the, the shares transferred to the foreign trusts and the because of the transfer, the legitimum policy breach. Right. But if instead he transferred money to the trust and the trust used that money to acquire shares in the Indonesian company, would that make a difference? That's a, that's a, would be different because the, the, the assets which had been transferred is not the shares. So the transfer itself uh, is, the, is the object of the <coughs> Right. Okay. Right. So I think from the Hong Kong perspective, Joe, I think this answer, um, Hong Kong does have protections, as does Singapore, um, against airship and succession rights in this way. So there would be some protections in the Hong Kong courts against the forced heirs being recognized. Um, there'd be some preliminaries to go through with respect to um, uh, sort of Rudy um, creating a trust during his lifetime, transferring the assets during his lifetime. And then there's some deemed rules on his capacity to do so, which generally allows that if he transferred assets, uh, uh, let's say under Hong Kong law, and they were lawful, then that would be fine. Rudy would be deemed to be a, a valid transfer of assets into the trust. So there are um, clawback, anti-clawback claim protections in Hong Kong, which would, in this instance, defeat um, or would likely defeat any claim being made to claw back uh, through the Hong Kong um, trust. Okay, and those rules in Singapore and uh, Hong Kong are effectively, they, they work the same, right? Yeah, in effect, the, the Singapore ones are a little bit older and they're a bit more prescribed because they, they, they effectively only apply to non-Singapore domiciliaries. Uh, Hong Kong one's a bit, a bit more clearly expressed. I suspect it's the same draftsman that both rules are, are, are emanating from, but they, they pretty much follow the same principles. Um, it's not a fully sort of comprehensive firewall because both Hong Kong and Singapore don't position themselves as aggressive international financial centers, but they, um, they will be sufficient to defeat this sort of claim. Okay, thanks. Let's uh, move off to, um, to John. Um, so John from Vich, a yeah, from a succession perspective, I think important to also remember, like when we talked about marital property, this is a state by state determination. So we'd look to see, well, where is the, where are the company shares kept um, uh, in the U.S. or outside the U.S.? In, in which particular state are they kept? 
um, or custodied in the in the banking relationship. So whether it's Indonesia or US, I think is first going to look at where that movable property is located. Um, with the land, you know, it's more about immovable property. So we look exactly where the land is located and that states succession rules. Um, there will be federal estate tax complications arising from uh, the land at a minimum and, and most likely the, the stock, the shares as well. Um, but there is a, a, a pretty simple, straightforward manner to address that and shield against the imposition of that U.S. estate tax. And that's holding those assets, not in your own individual name as a non-U.S. person, but in, in an offshore company's name. Uh, and that shields against the imposition of the U.S. estate tax when Rudy um, passes away. Just a matter of interest, John, when it comes to the succession to U.S. company shares, um, does the U.S. apply effectively looking at the domicile of, of Rudy at death? Is that what they're looking at to, to make that determination? Yeah, I think, I think, first of all, absent any contention and movable property, you're going to have a deference to that. Even with a contention and movable property versus immovable property, you're going to have maybe still a slight, say, maybe a slight deference to that, but you're bringing in the complication of a challenge that could be made under the actual location of where those um, shares are, are custodied. So we always want to see a, uh, an individual in this situation with U.S. assets or U.S. Heirs, you know, have a have a chat with U.S. counsel, see if we need to look at separate wills, um, uh, so that we're in a in a testate, not an intestate succession, um, or maybe we could combine um, uh, wills as long as we liaise with Indonesia counsel to make sure that we're not recommending anything that just gets invalidated by the the primary location of the will. Yeah, because the presumably the Indonesian forced air rules will be applied because of the movable assets, so it will, it will be importing the Indonesian. Uh, succession law rules, which will contain these forced airship rights. Yep. Yeah. And again, absent a contention, I think the U.S. would respect those. Uh, the U.S. doesn't have forced airship in, in that regard. Uh, they have one state that's based on the civil law system, Louisiana, but back in the 80s, they kind of got rid of any of those concepts of forced airship, even in Louisiana. There are statutory protections. They tend to fall more towards spouses, though, than any children protections in a, in a protection concept for heirs. Okay. Shall we move forward to the next uh, part? Yeah, so from a BVI, BVI perspective, yeah, with succession will apply. So um, BVI will apply usual common law principles. They'll look at the domicile of the individual at death. And in this case, um, that will be Indonesia. Uh, the BVI company shares are movable assets. So BVI would effectively apply Indonesian um, succession law. If you have a BVI will, which uh, seeks to override the, uh, let's say, the forced air rules under the Indonesian succession law, then that would uh, effectively not be um, effective. So it wouldn't be a sort of essential validity of that will wouldn't work. So it would have to comply with, and that's what BVI would do. It would defer to the Indonesian succession law. And if that succession law contains these forced airship rules, then that's the way in which this property will pass. And whether they attempted a BVI will, or whether or not it was effectively a BBI intestate. These are movable assets and they would be subject to whatever uh, Indonesian succession law provides. Um, that would be the ordinary English principles being applied. Let's move off to the, um, the next case, but um, this very different case about Henry. Henry um, lives in the US, 
fierce US uh, domicile, but he always kept his um, Indonesian passport. This is a case that, um, that you often see when Indonesian kids study in the US and decide to, um, to stay in the US and marry in the US. In our case on hand, Rudy is married to Fina and they have two children. One daughter is in the US and there's one son in, uh, in Asia, in Indonesia. The um, son of Henry is Andri. He's Indonesian citizen, domiciled and resident in, um, in Indonesia. So let's, let's, can we go to the next ones? Foreign community property. Right, John. Question, how do the um, community property laws in the US work? So sure, sure, just like we talked about uh, on the first one, this is just a kind of a more in-depth um, uh, uh, toehold that the US would have on, on these concepts. It's gonna be done on a state-by-state -state basis and each state, it can vary widely from the definition that say a California has of what is marital property and its community basis versus a definition of say a Texas or, or a Florida. So state-by-state -state analysis, but more a stronger grasping of um, the situation because of the residency slash uh, domicile of the individuals um, involved. It, whether it's going to apply to inherited and pre-marriage property, again, it's a state-by-state -state analysis. So it's highly important for Henry to take local advice as well as the, the federal tax advice and the connection with the um, outside jurisdiction. And those same points that I mentioned on pre- and post-nuptial agreements would apply here. We want to make sure they each have their independent counsel. They're fully forthright and disclosed everything. They don't put in elements of child custody and duties um, and preferably like to see it a good five, six weeks before the marriage. Thanks. And the, um, <clears throat> how do the community property rights apply to inherited and free marriage property? Sorry, John, just on the uh, community, does it include inherited and free marriage property or is it only just property during the marriage? Um, as, as a product of the labors of the, the relevant parties. Yeah, I, I wish we could give a simple answer. I think that there are states, like I mentioned, like California, that can be quite aggressive in 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 um, broadening that with a spouse that they see as either information was shielded from or in more of a need perspective versus a state that's maybe a little more conservative than, say, like a Texas or a Florida, where they wouldn't have as expansive of a basis. So really is, is, a, is a state by state analysis, both from where they are resident and domiciled and where the property in question is located. Mm. Okay. Um, uh, Freddie. <clears throat> yeah. Um, as foreign community property ownership, is it recognized in Indonesia? Like in this case? Yeah. Uh, in this case, meaning that the, <coughs> the assets located outside Indonesia belong to the disease, uh, Henry here, right? Yep. Yes. Subject to the subject to the this one is we talk on the community property, yes, uh, because mm -hmm. depend on if, if he 
married under Indonesian law, the community property would be applicable. Uh, for the inheritance, uh, yes, applicable here for Indonesia, uh, applicable Indonesian law because uh, Henry is still uh, Indo, Indo citizen. Right. And does it make any difference if the um, foreign marriage is or is not registered in Indonesia? Yes, uh, if the marriage done outside Indonesia and never registered here, meaning uh, that the Indonesian law cannot regulate the community property because that's uh, not Indonesian law marriage. Hmm. Okay. What, what, Freddie, what would be the status of the couple? So they're Indonesian citizens. They've been married, they celebrated their marriage in the US, but they didn't register it in Indonesia. So from an Indonesian standpoint, what would they be unmarried? From Indonesian perspective, they are unmarried because they, they, they did not register here. The principle of uh, valid marriage, if, if they marriage uh, based on the, if, if, if the marriage legal or valid under their religion, that's uh, the basic principle. So for the marriage outside Indonesia, the requirements for of the administrative uh, registrations is mandatory. So if they marriage outside Indonesia and they never registered, even though they maybe they marriage uh, uh, quite legally under the religion, but administratively that's uh, pretty difficult to say that they 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 uh, marriage under Indonesian law. Mm. So therefore, the community property in Indonesia wouldn't be recognized if they don't have a registered Indonesian marriage. Yes. Right. Okay. Um. <coughs> so Zach, is the U.S. community property ownership recognized and enforceable against the Singapore Trust in this case? Yeah, the same thing again. It would be common law principles being applied as to whether or not the assets transferred into the trust were uh, totally the ownership of, in this case, um, Henry. Um, it would be, a, I think, a matter of uh, sort of proprietary rights being recognized under the marriage domicile. And again, as I said, there's old UK authority on this. Uh, Singapore doesn't have any firewall protections that would defeat this proprietary ownership. And Singapore would look at the marriage domicile to see if it had community rights. So that would um, that would be you would expect that there would be recognition of the uh, the, the community property transferring into trust, and presumably Vina didn't give any, any consent to that occurring. So it potentially could be a tracing claim as a result. Uh, likewise with Cayman, they would uh, again recognise um, the, the foreign um, marriage domicile and the rights that flow from that. But always with these sorts of cases, you would look at, um, particularly the one with Cayman, if Henry is within the jurisdiction, I think um, John can back me up on this, that if, John, if Henry is within the jurisdiction, then the US court can simply make an order directly against Henry to, um, to get the assets and upon pain of contempt. Is that correct? correct yep, that's correct. Okay, 
And I think Joe may have broken up here. So can you guys still hear me? Yep. There we go, Joe. Sorry, we just lost you for a sec. Uh, go ahead. <clears throat> I'm back. No, no, my, my internet was weak over here. Um, cool. There's some questions for, um, for John. Yeah, so the, the divorce situation in the US. So now, unlike the original um, uh, case study where the couple was outside of the US, if they're in the US, you know, really is about in what state they're considered domicile resident. Again, each state has a slightly different definition. Um, there's a tendency, though, to want to avoid to be uh, seen as a divorce mill. So they wouldn't be extremely short. Uh, periods of time, but they could be. It could be, you know, a six to eight week minimum period that you've been in that state before it attaches. Others may be more um, aggressive slash conservative, depending upon how you're looking at it in claiming jurisdiction and say, look, you got to be here for six months to a year before we would entertain that we have primary jurisdiction over this divorce matter. And then you'd also bring into play where the property is located, those same distinctions we've already spoken about, movable versus immovable property, immovable more likely to have the U.S. jurisdiction, uh, um, immovable, that is, movable property, maybe not in a deference to a foreign uh, a foreign judgment or order. And then same points that we've mentioned, they haven't changed in regard to the pre- and post-nuptial agreements and their effect on that divorce. Okay. Thank you. Um, yep. Yeah. Thank you, sir. So, um, John, could the U.S. courts um, order the Indonesian assets to be divided? Yeah, so the, the, the typical, I would say, and, and I think Zach will speak a little bit more about um, divisions of property and variances of, of trust. The U.S. tends to shy away, away from, from this unless they're just left with no recourse. Um, sham transactions maybe, so if there was a transfer of that property, if it was movable property that was moved outside of the U.S. to Indonesia, if it wasn't um, immovable property, then they might try to invalidate the transaction itself. But ordering the specific division of something outside is is not as is not as likely, but it definitely is a possibility. And then whether the U.S. court order would be recognized again, I defer to Freddie on 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 that. Can you can you comment on that, Freddie? Would um, a U.S. court order be recognized in Indonesia? Okay, uh, basically all foreign court decision not recognized here. Uh, parties uh, have interest should re-litigate re re or start from fresh the case uh, in Indonesia court. And the decision from let's say US court uh, can be used as uh, evidence and uh, expert opinion let's say this involves is a uh, foreign law should be provided as well to justify the argument uh, so that's the way uh, if people want to enforce the foreign court judgment okay move on to the next one <clears throat> john would the u.s court seek to ferry the um, the terms of the Hong Kong Trust or divide the Cayman company shares? Yeah, similar answer that I already touched on. I think the, the first um, kind of the main 
focus of the U.S. court would be a sham transaction or sham trust issue and just invalidate the entirety of the structure, not so much vary it or try to tweak around the edges. That common law concept exists within the U.S. system. It's just not as commonly used by the courts, um, definitely less so than the U.K., and I'm sure Jack, uh, Zach can touch on that. Yeah, I mean, from a Hong Kong perspective, there isn't um, any express firewall protections against the matrimonial, the foreign matrimonial court order to um, vary or, or um, sort of declare the trust as sham, etc. Um, Hong Kong, as well as, sorry, Singapore, in this case, Singapore doesn't have the protections, neither does Hong Kong. Um, they've, uh, both Singapore and Hong Kong have not adopted some of the more um, uh, sort of robust protections that let's say jurisdictions like Gibraltar, Jersey, Guernsey, uh, Cayman, uh, BVI have, have adopted. So it is possible that the, um, the, the order seeking to vary the terms of the trust uh, may be respected by a Singapore um, court, but it would really be as a matter of comity as to whether or not the court would do that. Certainly in other jurisdictions, I think the US is another one of these where there's no express firewall protections, but generally the courts will Will, will shy away from having foreign orders disrupting domestic trusts or domestic structures. Um, that could be an approach adopted by the Singapore judiciary if it were to be a, a case. In Cayman Islands, they would again look at, uh, because these are not money judgments, these are looking at transfers of assets. In many cases, they would look at comity as a, as a basis to, um, to respect the foreign courts. And certainly if we had an instance where, let's say Henry was deliberately transferring assets out of the US to frustrate a U.S. family court from from discharging its obligations to the to the marriage, um, the, the dissolution of the marriage, then generally sister courts will not look favorably on um, on individuals sort of abusing jurisdictions to try and hide assets where there's a foreign family court trying to do the right thing by the party. So it would be a matter of comity. Um, there's no express um, firewall protections with respect to the Singapore Trust um, against a foreign judgment. Yeah, where it's dealing with a matrimonial order. So there's no, no, no express protections. The only protections that Singapore has deals with succession and inheritance claims. Thanks, Zach. Uh, shall we move on to the uh, foreign succession? So Henry passes away, leaves behind Fina, Grace, and Andre. Um, John. What's the, um, the basis for U.S. succession laws to apply here? Yeah, so from a federal perspective, all U.S. citizens are considered to be domiciled in the U.S. regardless of, of their location. Henry does happen to be physically in the U.S. We look at a state level analysis to figure out again which succession rules um, apply and then the, the succession law that will apply to the U.S. company shares, there's an opportunity here in all of these questions to kind of pre-plan. So we, we have a distinction between, between testate and intestate succession. Hopefully Henry's taken good advice, he's got a will in place, and so he has a good amount of decision-making authority over um, resolving any conflicts of laws from different jurisdictions that might potentially claim um, jurisdiction over the property that he's gonna be passing. And 
And if he does that in a will, that'll clear that up before he passes. If he doesn't, we're under different intestate succession laws and how they define um, the property that, ha that they have jurisdiction over. And then forced heirship we touched on earlier, not, don't really have that concept. Um, some statutory protections for a spouse maybe, but not really anything that would mandate um, something to go to, to the children. Thanks. The US, U.S. wouldn't follow the citizenship of the deceased, would it? <clears throat> he's still a, an Indonesian citizen. Would it apply Indonesian law because he's a, he's a national of that country? Or what, would it just apply his residency status in the U.S.? Yeah, it, it, wouldn't, it would not impact the U.S. determination, um, but there may be an outside impact. And then we'd wanna look at whether there are state tax treaties in place. In this instance, there is not. Uh, and so you're gonna to wanna to be very careful from an executor perspective about how you go about paying the relevant taxes. So if Indonesia were to have some claim, and I'll let Freddie speak to that, but let's say for example, this case that they, that they did, you'd wanna, you, you would want to make sure that that was, um, that, that, that you, you timed the credits sideways because the U.S. isn't going to give that credit for foreign taxes paid. Indonesia might. So you want to settle the U.S. side first and then claim the credit because if you do it the opposite direction, you might end up in a double tax situation that you otherwise could have avoided and you won't, you either spend time claiming back or you won't be able to claim back. Thank you. Uh, Freddie. Yes. Um, but would U.S. or Indonesian succession laws apply to the, uh, the Indonesian property of Henry? I think this uh, for the, the, the illustration of the case here, Pak Henry still hold Indonesian citizen and Pak Henry has uh, Indonesian asset. From Indonesian law perspective, uh, the inheritance uh, should follow the Indonesian law. Mm. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> sorry, would the U.S. or any foreign um, forest airship rights be effective over the Indonesian property? I don't think so because. Uh, the Indonesian law should, uh, should be upheld in this case uh, in the event Pa Henry passed away and still holds Indonesian citizen. And this is the Indonesian property anyway, so uh, it's impossible to enforce the foreign law decision which may, uh, which may have a different opinion, but the force her rights under Indonesian law under Indonesian law, still still applicable in case uh, any breach of the force hair rights in the, in the distribution. Okay, unless the marriage, um, the U.S. marriage wasn't registered in Indonesia, right? Uh, if they didn't register, uh, they the let's say uh, Grace or Andre. Mm -hmm. uh, they become the we so-called illegitimate uh, children. So they need to have the court uh, order first uh, by submitting various uh, supporting document. 
to have a declaration decision that they are the the legitimate one, the legitimate child, and then after that they can have the protection of the forced hair rights here, uh, meaning that they 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 do the two steps action before they they get the forced hair rights. Yeah. What about Vina, the wife? If the if the foreign marriage wasn't registered in Indonesia, what's the status of Vina? As a forced heir, is she still a forced heir, the, the surviving wife? Yeah, uh, because uh, administrative uh, issue here, Vina uh, can, uh, cannot be considered as the 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 wife for the purpose of the under Indonesian marriage law because not registered yet. Right. So very difficult for her to pursue the, the rights uh, community property here. But if she has benefit from the testament given by Henry, assuming Henry give the testament, Fina can pursue the, the rights uh, under the testament as one of the uh, here. Right. Yeah, well, she just wouldn't have the forced air rights because she's she's be viewed as unmarried. That's yes. The, yeah. Okay. okay. Let's move to the next one, please. <clears throat> okay, Zach, this one's for you. Can the Indonesian forced hairship rules and clawback rights be exercised against the uh, the trust in Singapore? Yeah, so Singapore, like Hong Kong, uh, has the, the ordinary anti-forced anti air provisions. Um, it would all be down to, I mean, in this case, we're saying that, uh, that Henry's US domicile at death. The, the key thing on the Singapore side for the protections is that uh, at no time was Henry a, um, a Singapore domiciliary, either at the creation or the later transfer of assets into this trust, and assuming the fact pattern that he had no connection uh, with, with, with Singapore then the anti-forced airship provisions under the Singapore Trustee Act would apply in the usual way to defeat a forced air claim. And then with respect to the succession law, which succession law would apply to Cayman company shares, Indonesia or US? Now that would be a matter for Cayman Islands to determine uh, applying its own uh, sort of uh, forum rules. And what they would say is they would look at the domicile at death under Cayman law, they would look at Henry's connection to the US. And I think in this instance, they would um, accept that uh, Henry died a US domiciliary and therefore succession to the company shares in Cayman Islands is governed by you know, US succession law and not um, uh, Indonesian uh, forced air rules uh, because uh, Cayman Islands like the US a common law jurisdiction and they would look to domicile and not nationality at death for the applicable law to, to be applied to which, um, which heirs can get the shares to the company. So we would be uh, U.S. law that would be applied um, you know, to the Cayman Company shares. <coughs> Thanks, Zach. Let's move on to the, um, the third case. Something I, I hear a lot lately. Um, we have an Indonesian couple, Agus and Elsa, with one child, Ansel. So Agus and Elsa are intending to migrate to, um, to Europe. So now I want to um, hand over to Dominic and basically um, 
this first time give us some uh, a rundown on the popular European programs, the process to apply in the, uh, the due diligence process. Thanks, Joe. Um, yeah, so maybe, so, so what we're talking about here, of course, is uh, investment migration. So we're getting a lot of, a lot of interest um, out of Indonesia, particularly looking at, um, you know, what a lot of high net worth individuals there consider to be their plan B or sort of a more of an insurance policy, um, you know, against, against anything, against, uh, um, economic uncertainty, political uncertainty, and very few of our clients actually use these investment, investment migration programs and leave Indonesia. Um, but certainly they're, they're using them for a myriad of other reasons around, you know, the, the children's education. Um, of course, now with COVID-19, the ability to get access to better healthcare systems. Um, and, and other things like that. So Europe is, is very, um, very often a focus for them. The great thing about Europe, uh, if you just, I think, pop over to the next slide, the, the great thing about Europe is that it has a mix of both citizenship by investment and residence by investment. So these are, um, as you can see on this slide here, there's, there's a lot of countries around the world that now have these investment migration programs. So probably over a hundred countries now have some form of legislation or regulation in place, but only really these uh, 30 odd here um, have very active and relevant and attractive programs that are, are very much um, taken advantage of by financially independent people. So Europe is, is, is often the focus, um, particularly in a place like Indonesia, um, the U.S., of course, is, is also very popular, and I think a lot of a lot of wealthy families educate their, their children in the U.S. Um, we speak to a lot of clients that like to do this through an investment migration program, and not necessarily just with a student visa because it's actually more beneficial. Um, in Europe, as I said, that this is the countries we see here is a bit of a mix. So Austria, Cyprus, and Malta, which you can see on the screen, um, I would say those would of the top shelf options these all you know these three countries it's possible through um an, a significant investment or sometimes contribution to the country to acquire citizenship in those countries so, so austria cyprus and malta particularly attractive because they are all members of the european union so you don't have to go to you know you don't have to go and live in the country you don't have to learn the local language um, as long as you have the financial capacity and you know, coming to the due diligence and AML checks, of course, this is only for people you know, that can pass the, the very thorough vetting and, and due diligence processes that these governments perform. Um, but with a multi-separate Austrian citizenship, you basically have access to the whole of Europe. So you are then a European citizen. You have settlement freedom across Europe. Your kids can go and study for free in Sweden, they can go and get work experience in Germany um, without ever having to worry about a visa. So the citizenship is very attractive. Of course, as an Indonesian national, you're not allowed dual citizenship. So this is a consideration that, that the family will have to be comfortable with that if they acquire an alternative citizenship, they would have to um, you know, surrender or renounce the Indonesian citizenship. So that's 
arguably an easier decision for someone that's already maybe a permanent residence in Singapore and has sort of handed over the business in Indonesia to the next generation. Um, other families we work with, um, only certain individuals within the family would look at uh, the citizenship. Um, but the nice thing, as I said about Europe, and which is very popular in Indonesia, is the residence by investment program. So there, uh, at, the, at the front end, you've got Portugal, um, which has a very attractive golden residence permit program. Greece has a similar program. Um, and these are typically real estate investments anywhere from 250 to 500,000 euros. You're getting the plan B, you're getting residence in these countries. Um, both have reacted incredibly well in terms of their sort of pandemic response now and, and how their healthcare systems have coped. And, and critical for a lot of our clients is because countries like Portugal and Greece are in the Schengen zone, just by acquiring uh, real estate and getting a resident permit for that country, you would never have to worry about a Schengen visa again. So you're getting actual, you know, global mobility and access to to the European Schengen zone just by having that residence permit. So I'd say those are probably the most popular in terms of, of Europe. Of course, we do have lots of clients as well from Indonesia that are looking at places like Australia and New Zealand also have interesting investor visa categories as well as the UK. Um, so that would probably be in a nutshell there. If you, if you just go back to the other slide, just so I'm making sure I'm hitting all the points. Um, in terms of the application process, obviously, you know, we would make it as, as sort of straightforward and um, uh, easy for the client as possible. So, uh, as I said, the due diligence is very important. Um, there's a, a sort of onboarding process, and then the governments would certainly do their own enhanced due diligence on these individuals. Um, on the investment amounts, as I said, on the residence by investment, Greece, 250,000 euros into real estate, which of course you can, you can rent out. So that's interesting. Portugal, usually about 350 to 500,000 euros. And then if you look at the, the sort of Malta, Cyprus, Austria categories, because those are citizenship and settlement freedom throughout Europe, they do demand a higher capital outlay. So Malta is about a million euro. Cyprus probably all in about 2.4 million euro. And range anywhere from three to eight million euro depending on whether the client wants to go the, the donation route which is available or an investment into a company um, finally the aml due diligence as i said you know these programs are quite strict on this now um well have always been very strict but, but tightened it even more now in terms of really understanding the client's source of funds um, they want to know if you look at Malta, you know, you've got to disclose what is your net worth? Where are those assets sitting? How did you acquire the funds to acquire those assets? And of course, the due diligence procedure is now um, very much part of the process, and largely done by the government that they're applying to. Thank you. Uh, what, quick question, uh, Dominic. A ballpark figure, how long does it take to... Um, Suppose you want to, you plan to be out of Indonesia in the, say the next so many years. You, what do you plan for? What is it a one or two year process? To um... yeah, so it would depend on the country. Um, in Greece, in Greece, you can get permanent residence. Greece, if we start today, probably it takes the whole process. Probably takes no more than three or four months. Um, 
Malta would be a longer process, probably about a year and a half from start to finish. But although it's a longer process, you get the residents of Malta within probably the first uh, sort of one to two months. And so you could already move to Malta. And then it's just a case of waiting for the government to finish their citizenship processing. Um, so all in all, the Malta citizenship and passport is about a year and a half, but you do get the residents very early on. Portugal probably takes about five to six months, Cyprus now probably eight to 10 months. So it's usually a, a sort of roughly a six to 12 month horizon um, that the family can plan for. Hmm. That seems to be fairly, uh, that's fairly quick. All right, thanks a lot for that. Um, <clears throat> maybe we have time for um, one or two questions from the, um, from the audience. I got one with respect to the Singapore Section 90 and just mentioning um, whether or not Section 90 is wide enough to defeat a community claim um, because it, uh, Section 90 seeks to validate the capacity to transfer into trust. Um, I think it's, it's important to note that Section 90 is geared towards inheritance and succession, not to matrimonial regimes. So it's, it's, not, it's not geared up to protect against that, even though it's validates the capacity to transfer that capacity that it's discussing is the capacity with respect to transferring to defeat a forced heir or a succession claim it's not broad enough to capture um, matrimonial which is com completely separate from a from a, a succession standpoint so one succession law and one's matrimonial law and section 90 is not dealing with matrimonial law when it seeks to validate the capacity of a person to transfer an asset into trust and there's another point there from another participant uh, dealing with uh, Muslim and Sharia law. Uh, I think the best answer to that is there will be, uh, we will revisit um, some of these things, but we will be dealing with it from a, from a Muslim uh, marriage perspective. And I think that's probably better dealt with under that. At the moment today, yeah, the, the Indonesian law that we're discussing is really the Dutch ancestral um, sort of uh, legal system that applied during the colonial times that still is applicable in, um, in Indonesia now. And with respect to, I have another, another one, which is, um, I think this is a, an interesting one for uh, sort of Freddie. Insofar as, uh, I think we could just encapsulate this all. Freddie, if we just yes. take a, a, a communal, communal garden instance of a, a, an Indonesian passing away, and then you, you correct me if I'm wrong in any of this. The first thing that will happen is you'll get a separation of the property that the deceased held at death into half of which under the general rules will go by community to the surviving spouse. So that, that's yes. an automatic transfer. Then you'll have the other half that's remaining and it's this that will then start to be split between the surviving spouse and the children of the, of the marriage. And right. then there'll, there'll be a portion left, which is disposable, which is the, the, the portion that the deceased could by will transfer to anyone he wishes. Is, is that basically how it is? So you split community, then you go forced air, split between forced airs, and then there's a left, there's a, a hanging bit at the end that you can actually have free disposition over. Is that, is that pretty correct? Yes, uh, generally correct, yeah. But on the forced hairs, that's basically, you need to put uh, in priority or we need to take care first uh, where after the community property. Yeah. So let's say using the, figures 100 so the first 50 community property so uh, nobody touch unless the, the the surviving spouse the remaining 50 
we make sure the 25 uh, protected for force hair rights. Right. Uh, after that, the the other 25 can go to the the hair. Right. Or if any testament or whatever, uh, we can deal later. Uh, meaning that. Uh, Uh, we can be uh, we are we can be a bit relaxed uh, to to see the, the remaining 25 right and just ready on the computation of the estate value when you're working out whether or not the airship rights have been breached is it right that you basically uh, compute the entire estate during the lifetime of the deceased so giving away gifts during their lifetime they're all brought back in to the pot to make up the actual estate notional value at death. Is that correct? Uh, general rule, yes. The right. two is about valuation. Let's say, the, if we use Pak uh, Rudy here the, 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 as the first sample, the first illustration, uh, when he passed away, let's say he, he was 80. So during his life, He already gave the son land, maybe the other one is shares, but the valuation may be a bit different uh, when he passed away. So that's something that uh, sometimes the, the tension during the distributions comes up. Right. Uh, the, the valuation uh, may be already much different Uh, then the the one that maybe stated in the in the deed of grant. Right, right. Uh, so that's a, a quite classic issue for the for the clawback or or for the computation of what already given or granted uh, in the past. Right, right. Okay, I think that's pretty much all of the. Uh, the relevant questions um, that we've, we've got. Uh, I think we probably can, can wrap up there. It's actually um, six o'clock on the dot yep. uh, for Singapore time. Uh, the recording for this session will be made available once it's uploaded to the cloud. And uh, members can then, if you've registered, you should go on and be able to uh, sort of view that on demand um, without any further requirement. So I think we're probably going to calling a halt now. Um, tomorrow is the China um, virtual roundtable and later on in June will be the um, uh, Thai as well as the Malaysian versions of this and the dates for those will be confirmed uh, once they are available. If there's further questions um, please be feel free to send me an email with questions on this or any of the others. I've, I've got uh, in terms of the slides if you wish to have them they have all of the, the, the relevant speakers as well as their email addresses. So if you've got any further questions, then please send them along and then we'll endeavor to, to give you an answer. Okay, I think that's pretty much it for today. Thanks very much for uh, attending this virtual round table and uh, I think we call it all today. Thank you.